Well, good evening, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Olga, and I'm training to be a vicar in the Church of England. And I'm also studying the Old Testament in the Divinity Faculty. I'm currently in my second year of PhD, so basically halfway through. And I spend my days walled up in the library thinking about the book of Jeremiah. So it's, it's great fun. Um, maybe the word fun when it comes to the book of Jeremiah isn't exactly right, but, but I love it. Um, I'm married to Simin. Uh, we've been married almost five months now. Thank you, yes. Still, still going strong after all this. <laughs> um, Simeon is a very talented PhD student in New Testament and early Christianity. So as a, as a student of the Old Testament, I often pick his brains about the New Testament. So by way of disclaimer, if uh, anything today isn't up to snuff, you know who to blame. So today we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. Uh, this term in our evening gatherings, we have been focusing on the seven signs, the seven miracles of Jesus that John has taken great care to record for his readers, his ancient readers, but also for us gathered here at St. Barnabas in Cambridge 2,000 years after these events took place because they're as relevant today as they were back then. John has written this record down that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name, that we may have an abundant, full life, packed with purpose, with fulfillment and adventure, and most importantly, with God as its center of gravity. Nicky Gamble, the vicar of Holy Trinity Brompton in London, calls this life in high definition, with no fuzzy lines or distortions and a bolder, richer, brighter, and more vibrant picture than ever before. Life in high definition. And Jesus is the one in whom we find this life. And John wants us to encounter this Jesus, perhaps for the first time for some of you, perhaps afresh for others. Either way, as we read these stories, John wants us to grow in our relationship with Jesus. And this evening we come to John chapter 6. In this sign, Jesus um, feeds a large crowd of people, 5,000 men, and that's not including women and children. It's a story that appears in all four Gospels, so it's probably safe to say that we need to listen up. So if you'd like to turn to John 6, um, which you can find on your devices or in the red 
the red Bibles on an unknown page. There you go. So John 6, and we're going to read verses 4 to 15. So let's read it. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they, had all, when they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So before I share with you my take on this passage, and it's such a rich passage that we could all preach hundreds of sermons on it and still not come anywhere near to exhausting its meaning and significance. So before I share with you just one dimension of this incredible encounter with Jesus, can I suggest that you spend a few minutes thinking about this fascinating passage uh, together and opening it up for each other. Uh, so maybe if you'd like to get into groups of four or five, um, and feel free to move the chairs around, that's, that's absolutely fine. Um, and we have about five minutes for this, and we also have four questions uh, that um, um, I would like you to reflect on. So the questions are, what does this story say to you about people? What does this story say to you about Jesus? What does this story have to say about you? And finally, who needs to hear the story? So let's take a moment to learn from each other. Um, so we've got about four minutes. Feel free to chat. Great. Well, there is so much going on in the story and... After, after the service, I'd love to hear what you've made of it. But my message to you today is going to be very simple. 
Jesus wants to surprise you. He wants to lavish his love and his goodness on us in ways that we never even imagined were possible. Our God loves to surprise us. Jesus wants to surprise you. And these are not some feel-good platitudes, mildly encouraging, a bit corny, and certainly very hard to take seriously. No, this is the very heart, the very essence of God's character and the vision he has for our lives. In my view, unless we firmly grasp the truth of these statements, we will never know who God is. We worship the God of amazing love and amazing surprises. And it is this combination of divine love and divine freedom that stands front and center in this passage this evening. The Jewish Passover festival was near. This tiny and seemingly unimportant detail at the beginning of the passage is actually the major key to unlocking its meaning. The Passover was, and still is, um, an annual festival established by God himself to make sure that his people would always remember the fateful night when they uh, escaped the Egyptian oppressors. Many of you will, uh, will know the story of Moses and the Exodus well. God himself led the Israelites out of Egypt, out of the land where they toiled as slaves into the promised land, the land that he had sworn to give to their forefathers forever. The entire nation spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness in an arid desert, and yet they did not perish. They survived thanks to God's incredible provision of manna, a miraculous flake-like substance that they gathered daily for 40 years without fail with the morning dew. Not only was the exodus um, a dramatic event accompanied by countless signs and wonders, but it also became the cornerstone for Israel's self-understanding as a nation belonging to God, redeemed by God from slavery and set aside for his special purposes. For the Jewish people, the Passover was, and still is, the central event of their faith, because it points back to uh, God's definitive action in the past to rescue his people and to provide for them. Each year at Passover, the Jews would um, relieve these events, and as they did so, they were reminded of God's mercy and goodness towards them. But far from being merely an event set in the distant past, the Passover eventually came to symbolize a future promise, a future promise by God to come back 
and set things right again. In our passage today, John deliberately mentions the Passover because he wants us to pay attention to the fact that the people in the scene were filled with expectation. The atmosphere must have been electric. These ancient tales of God's incredible provision were in the air. They were so tangible, so near, and so real, and yet there was still no sign of God's new exodus. In those days, God's people were groaning under the yoke of slavery once again, this time of the Roman rather than Egyptian variety, and they longed to be set free from the evil empire that relentlessly oppressed them. They were expectantly waiting for a great leader, a great king like David, a great prophet like Moses, someone who would lead them out of slavery and into freedom, as Moses had done before. The whole nation was filled with expectation. And suddenly, Jesus came bursting into their waiting and their longing, as Moses had done before. These ancient promises from a distant past, at that point almost a mythic past, were suddenly coming alive once again in their presence. The people had heard about the promises from their ancestors. They faithfully believed them. They recited them day after day. But in their heart of hearts, they dared not believe that they would ever live to see God's salvation again. And it is into this world that Jesus comes bursting. In the sign, Jesus very conspicuously reenacts the events of the Exodus to announce to the weary people that God is on the move again. But notice that this was no mere repeat of the past, a rerun of the earlier divine victories. Instead, God surprised them all and frankly blew the doors of the expectations. Yes, Jesus is the successor to Moses, the new prophet, but he is so much more than a new Moses. To be sure, he is the new king, the successor to David, but he is so much more than a new David. Not only does God give them a new Moses or a new David, but he gives them and he gives us his son. Instead of sending an intermediary figure to look after his, ch his children like a king or a prophet, God himself has come in the flesh to save them and to give them life. God's provision for his people is so much more lavish, so much more generous, so much more extravagant than they could ever imagine. We're not an afterthought for God, but rather we're his first thought 
In the old Exodus from Egypt, everyone got a certain share of the manna. Not an ungenerous one by any means, but um, if they took more than they needed, um, the manna would spoil rapidly as a punishment. This time, John is very quick to tell us, Jesus gave the people as much food as they wanted. And even after that extraordinary feast was over, there were still 12 baskets of leftovers. Wow. Jesus gave them so much more than they could ever dream of. But that's not all. That's not even half of it. Not only does Jesus merely give them a lot of bread, he is the bread. Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Never hunger, never thirst. Here is, here is the main point, really. Jesus came into the world not to give bread, but to be bread. God has surprised us all. The reaction of the people is very telling. God has surprised them. He has blessed them beyond their wildest dreams, but they do not see it. Yahweh himself, the God they worship and pray to daily, is standing right in front of them, but they fail to recognize his presence. It is not that they, that, that they miss the point of the sign entirely. They get it half right. Jesus is the king, he is the prophet, but he is so much more. God has this amazing surprise up his sleeve, but they do not see it. Have you ever wondered what the root cause of this blindness might be? Well, it seems to me that whether because of apathy or unbelief, they've put God in a box, and in a very limited box at that. Put simply, they don't know God. They don't know the depth and the breadth of his love for them. At best, they're hoping that God will do the bare minimum, but they're certainly not expecting any major surprises from him. They set their sights too short. They're not ambitious enough in their prayers and their hopes. They're not restless enough in their longing. They're not dreaming big enough. Even the dream of a prophet or a king, a new David and a new Moses, falls far short of God's dream for his people. Does this perhaps ring a bell? Does this sound at all familiar? These are Jewish believers, God's chosen people. They're not pagans. They have walked with God for their entire lives. They come weekly, if not daily, to hear the scriptures read in the synagogues. They worship the one true God and pray to him regularly. And still, they miss the point. I don't know about you, but I found it very convicting and 
very powerful. Do I really believe that God is a God of surprises, of extravagant, ridiculously generous surprises? Do I know the depth and breadth of God's love for me? If I'm honest, I, I also often struggle to believe this. Of course, I mentally assent to this truth. I can preach a sermon about the mind-blowing nature of God's generosity, but do I feel in my bones that God can and will provide for me in such an amazing way? The Apostle Paul said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Do we actually believe it? Or have we in reality put God in a box? Do we really know God? Here is a final thought. God will surprise us not only because he will give us more than we ever desired and when we least expect it, but also because he will change what we desire. God doesn't want us to give, doesn't want to give us more wealth or more comfort than we could ever imagine. God isn't a means to getting what we already wanted anyway. God gives us himself. John wants us to see that Jesus himself is better than anything we ever wanted. This is as surprising today as it was back then. And it is as amazing a gift now as it was back then. So who needs to hear this story? Well, frankly, everyone in the world, everyone in Cambridge, everyone in the Mill Road area, but I would say especially those of us who dare not dream. Those of us who are waiting for crumbs from our Father's table because we have run out of hopes and prayers and have no more energy left to dream big. We may not see it clearly now, but there is a feast in full swing in the room next door, and we are invited, you and I. God loves to surprise us, and his provision for us is more than we could ever imagine. So take heart and wait for God, wait for his surprises, because they will come. On the other hand, some of us here today may be waiting for the wrong things. It may be that our prayers have become too self-centered. It is all about us and our expectations. Jesus, give me this job. Jesus, give me this exam result. Jesus, can you write this dissertation for me? I may be speaking from experience here. <laughs> 
It's not that God doesn't want us to have these things, because he does. But he's got so much more in store for us. So wherever you are in your faith and life right now, the message from John today is very straightforward, but also profoundly challenging. Prepare to be surprised. Be ready to encounter God in you. God's lavish and extravagant provision for his children blows any ideas we may have had about the breadth and depth of God's love for us right out of the water. This is what God is like. So let's live expectantly and wait for Jesus with hope. So when you go home tonight, keep reading this passage, keep wrestling with it, and keep the conversations going. Let's always keep waiting on the Lord so that we, when he surprises us, and he will, we will be awake and watching to enjoy his gifts. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being the God of surprises who can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Lord, please surprise us again and give us faith to never lose sight of your amazing love for us. Pour out your love on us afresh this evening. Amen.